So a couple things I need to tell you before we get rolling. The first is that uh, if you're a small group leader or if you're going through the devotional, we're going to skip to week six. And then next week we're going to skip, go back to week five and Vince is going to preach. And then the next week we're going to go back forward to the rest of, cha- of week six. That's because I preached twice as much passage the last time I preached as I was supposed to. So there it is. Okay, and then secondly, um, a couple weeks ago, Manohar uh, James, who's um, one of our ministers, was up here, and we were sending him off to India to do a bunch of conferences, and we needed to raise another like $25,000 in like, you know, a couple of days. And then he wanted us to pray for his travel and safety and stuff like that. So since then, Manohar has had his visa to get back to this country denied at the U.S. consulate in, I think, Chennai. And then I found out just before this service that it came through yesterday. Okay, so kind of excited about that. We don't have to, like, wrangle any senators. So that was good. And then um, since we prayed about uh, the funds that we needed to do two days instead of one-day seminars with more pastors, um, people in this church gave $28,000, which is kind of— way beyond what I thought was going to happen. So that was pretty, that was pretty awesome. Um, so that's good. Okay, also a couple of, oh, I, so let me, let me say this, I, and I want to pray about it right now. Um, Manohar has had some health issues since he got over there. He had to have like a surgery on Wednesday, and he's still in the hospital, and he's going to ha- he's supposed to do like a seminar in a couple of days, and he doesn't know how he's going to travel. So can we pray for him right now? Let's pray. God, we lift up Manohar to you and especially this physical condition that he's in, we pray that you would heal him, you would strengthen him, and that he would be able to do the work you've put in front of him to do. If, um, yeah, we, we pray that you would help him and that you'd minister to him. So if you have used, if you want to use this to put him on the sidelines and teach him something, we're, we're totally cool with your will. But if this is an attack or a, a, an attempt to take him away from what he's supposed to be doing, we pray that you'd overcome it in power and heal him. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I also told you a couple of weeks ago that Gene, that Gene Collins, who has been our church administrator for like 10 years, was going to be leaving to take a job at the Upper House because it was a more ministry-focused job and it's something, a move she really wanted to make. It, this is also the person that you want to trust the most on your church staff besides maybe the senior pastor or something. And so we definitely need a trustworthy church administrator. Um, and so uh, Brandon Ellis has accepted an offer from us to do that job. Brandon has been part of this church for like 19 years. He ran the Trinity Education Extension when it was going. And so I can't, I can't think of a person who's more a part of our church. And his job is administrating a whole office of engineers. And if he can handle engineers, he can probably handle us. So he agreed to take that job, and we're really excited about that uh, on the staff team. So, yeah. Okay, you ready? We are in a series on stewardship called Entrusted. The idea that I'm trying to get across on stewardship throughout the whole Bible is that stewardship is the recognition that in the ultimate sense, we own nothing, and yet we are in charge of everything in our life. Right? We don't own anything in the ultimate sense. Everything ultimately belongs to God. And yet, everything that's in our life, he has put in our hands to invest. We are his investor, his manager, his steward. Does that make sense? And so, what I've been trying to do through this series is not to increase the giving of High Point Church, um, which is what everybody thinks of when they think of a stewardship series. That's just a nice way to say, we want you to give a lot of money. Um, We are, in the last eight years, we've almost always been in budget surplus. That's not why we do anything financially that we do. 
I, the goal here is for us to be the best managers of everything God has given us, whether that's our privacy or our talents or our money. Does that make sense? Okay. So one of the things we're talking about in order to grow in stewardship today is just that we, in order to be a steward, you have to maintain your focus on who you are and what you're doing throughout your entire life. If you lose your focus, if you forget what you're doing and why you're doing it, you'll stop doing what you're supposed to do and being who you're supposed to be, okay? One of the ways to think about this a little bit is that it is very normal in our present life to get our minds caught on things that are outside of what we're supposed to be thinking about and doing. Um, the the uh, development of news apps has changed the way people receive news, and because it's very hard to make any money in news anymore, um, a lot of the news stuff has, has been focused on clickbait kind of stuff. Like, you need people to click on your news thing, and so you've got to make it, like, as salacious as possible, and you've got to tap into all the, like, lowest, most animal spirit-based desires in human beings. Stuff that will make you mad, stuff that will make you afraid, stuff that will make you stress out. Like, they intentionally have to make the news stories like that so that you'll click on them. The problem is, is that what, the, what that produces in you is fear, anxiety, frustration, hatred— Right? Since 2004, which is not just when President Obama became president, it's also during the app revolution and the transformation of news in the United States. Um, the, amount, the amount Democrats hate Republicans has tripled, and the amount Republicans hate Democrats has tripled. Right? And you can feel it. And it makes people anxious. And there are, there are studies, there have been a lot of studies on social media when we broadcast our lives to others and other people broadcast their lives to us, that it's almost a universal evil in human life. It, it destroys flourishing, it hurts everything, makes people hate their lives and dislike other people and look up old girlfriends from high school and think other people's pictures are what their life is really for. There's, there's almost nothing positive to say about social media uh, other than that you can see pictures of your grandkids. That's basically it. Okay? And you might be able to get a good idea for a hairstyle. Right? That's, that's, that's the extent of it. I'm not saying as a Christian you can't use social media. I'm just saying what I said. Okay? So, <laughs> what we're finding though is that news is having a similar effect except a little bit different but sort of as bad. Which is that in the grappling to try to get the attention of the American public with our immediate access on our phones, you can be like, well, I'm not going to look on my Facebook app. I'm going to look on my AP News app. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. You're just reviewing who you're supposed to hate, who you're supposed to like, what you're supposed to be nervous about, what you're supposed to be depressed about, stuff that you have—you're you, not getting the story about. You don't really know what's going on. You're not anywhere near informed enough to have an opinion about it, but it is enough information to exercise you emotionally. So you can know, depending on the news source you read, which politician is the devil, or which person is telling lies, or this, that, or the other thing. And it's enough to—and there are, like, there are psychological studies on this now, and here are some of the effects. Increased depression—this is for news apps now, not social media. Increased depression symptoms, heightened anxiety, broadened anxiety, because you didn't even know you were supposed to be nervous about some of these things, you know? What they call somatization—soma is the Greek word for body. So somatization is when you don't feel nervous, but— you're having, you're having like a, a chest-tight panic attack, and you don't feel panicked at all, but you're flipping out, or like your eye starts twitching, or you 
like can't pee or something. Like just, there's like a hundred of these symptoms that people have and they're like, I feel fine. I don't know what's going on in my life. But they've got these medical problems and doctors are like, I have no idea why this is happening to you. And there are a lot of these. And I'm not going to get too graphic. I'm just going to leave it there. But it's stuff you don't want to talk about. Digestive problems, bowel issues, <laughs> obsessive attention, heightened negative feelings towards others. Right? Because like, if you read about Democrats, you're going to hate them. If you read about Republicans, you're going to hate them if you're the other side, right? But if you just have lunch with a Democrat or a Republican, whichever the opposite you are, you would think they were nice people. You'd be like, oh, my Democrat friend, I love him. They're probably all like that. Or my Republican friend, ah, oh, he's a nice guy. All that stuff's probably lies. That's what you would think. But you don't have those friends because you sort, because you use social media, and then you read the news story that tells you you should hate them. And then you're angry. And that's not what your attention is for. That's not what your energy is for. That's not what your identity is for. That's not what your focus is for. Right? Because one of the, there's this, there's this firm in New York City that studies how much, like, actual productivity is lost in businesses when things that get people's attention happen, right? And so the Kavanaugh hearings were, like, this big thing this week, right? And no matter which side you're angry about, um, like, people were paying attention to this. And so they estimated that on the basis of that, that the United States economy lost about 1.7 billion dollars in productivity. Which is, it's kind of a lot. Right? Now, I don't want to blow this out of proportion because this, the NCAA tournament does about 2.3 billion. The Super Bowl does 3 billion. Even The Last Jedi, especially among tech companies that are overpopulated with nerds, that's a big one for them. And then, the solar, just the solar eclipse. 700 million, right? So people, get distracted from what they're supposed to be. Let's go see. The sun's going to be a little darker. The sun's going to be a little darker. This never happens. You know, like, forget about the PTS report, you know, and, and so they just don't do their work. And now, to a certain extent, as a boss, you can never wring out the last measure of efficiency from human beings, and you shouldn't try. All right? Because happy people are more productive. So you could, like, you could wring all out this all from people, you know, if you're a boss, and you could get like maximum efficiency and then make them really unhappy so they become highly inefficient. You know, it's like there's no way to win with normal human beings, right? Read Anna Karenina, right? So the, the point is, is though, with our multitasking and our news medias and our social media apps and so on, what happens is, is that our minds are not on our lives. You know what I noticed this morning? I didn't think about this till this morning because I was praying about this message. You know what? I know—I'm going to say this in the most humiliating way I can think of at the moment. I know a hundred times more about the teenage years of Brett Kavanaugh and Boa Blazy Ford than I know what is going through the mind of my five-year-old daughter this month. I realized that this morning. I don't know what's hurting Helena's feelings right now. I don't know exactly what she's developing through. I haven't been paying attention. Right? But dang it, I know how I feel about what might have happened maybe a long time ago on the basis of what a lot of people who have a lot of interests in what happens are saying must have happened who weren't there and don't know. Do you, can you, can you empathetically feel some of the humiliation I feel about that? And because that's part of the point Jesus is going to make here in this, these passages about our stewardship is, I know you want to pay attention to things, and I know you're afraid of missing out on stuff, 
And I know that you're afraid of not being sufficiently woke and all of that. But like, if that keeps you from knowing what you are supposed to be doing right now, and if it gives you excuses not to do it the way you're supposed to, because you're angry about blah, 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 so you're rude to this person because you think you're justified, right? You've lost, you've totally lost what your life is for. Your purpose, your meaning, your identity, what it means to reflect the image of God in the world. It's all lost because of this distraction of bigger questions you want to involve yourself with. And what the Bible is saying over and over, Jesus says in many vases, many ways and in various times, is he's saying, listen, you do need to know the bigger picture and that you need to know God's plan, or you need to understand the basics of how the kingdom of God functions. That's, that's important. You need to know that. And then you need to focus on what you're doing. Right? Jesus' attitude towards how you're living your life is probably like my attitude is going to be towards my oldest daughter in about three weeks. Because she's going to get her permit. And I'm going to be very focused on her being very focused on what she's doing. Because we're not. We are very distractible creatures. We are distracted by everything. Okay, so let's, let's look at how this works. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at the first two passages we read today, and then I'm going to come back and review this in two weeks after Vince preaches, and I'm going to preach about the last passage, which is about spiritual and moral intimidation, and how you overcome that intimidation with courage without resorting to hatred or anger to do it, which Jesus lays down how to do that very well and how he does it very well. So the, the first thing to, to know here is one, is that kingdom development is something like, you could call it something like this, disproportionately silent outgrowth. So the passage right before the one we looked at today, there's a woman at a synagogue, and she's been hunched over for something like 18 years. I don't remember the exact number of years. You'll have to read the Bible yourself. But she's been hunched over for something like 18 years, and it's the Sabbath day where the religious people think you're not supposed to heal people. And he says to her, this woman, come forward, daughter, you're healed. And then he heals her, and she stands up straight. She praises God because she's healed. And then people get angry at him for healing on the Sabbath day. He's like, I'm going to heal whatever I want, whatever I want to. Right? And he says, look, you, you don't, when your ox needs to drink water on the Sabbath day, you don't go like, well, it's work to untie my ox and bring him out to the water. Like you, mentally, you can distinguish between plowing a field with your ox and watering your ox. Those are like maintaining life and working for your wealth are not the same thing. And mentally, you should be able to distinguish between the two of those things, and you won't. Right? But he's like, but I'm going to do it. And, when, and re restoration, redemption, salvation is a work of health, not a work of wealth. And so I can do it any day I want to. And I'm going to do it every day I want to. And of course, all the people who like Jesus are like, yeah, Jesus, you're going to heal everybody. We're going to win, 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 right? We're like, everybody's going to be saved, right? And then he goes and he says this. He says, listen, let me tell you what the kingdom of God is like. He says, imagine a person's garden. Because most people had gardens, right? Most people had a little plot of land. They had a field that they worked in, but most people would have a garden at their house where they would grow spices and herbs and like, you know, chickpeas and some stuff. And they might have a couple of fruit trees. You try to make it as productive as possible. Old Europe was like this too. I was just having a conversation with a guy who escaped Soviet Czechoslovakia. And um, he was talking about, he had this like greenhouse and all this stuff. He's like, he's like, oh yeah, in the Czech Republic, man, 
I just heard all kinds of stories. It was fun. But they had, everybody had like a little plot, and they tried to grow stuff because, you know, you needed that nourishment. So he's like, the guy would go out to the garden. He's like, listen, if you look at all the stuff people plant in their garden, they plant beans and they plant all this stuff, but the smallest seed that people plant in their garden is a mustard seed. It's tiny. It's this tiny little seed, and they plant it, and it actually grows in this pretty big tree. And, he, and, he, and so he says, the kingdom of God is kind of like that. It starts out super small, and then it kind of progresses in a nonlinear fashion, and then it ends the biggest thing that there is, right? And so, and you know this, like if you plant seeds in your house in March in Wisconsin, because you have a garden, it's not impressive how this goes. You start with this tiny little seed, and you put it in there, and then it takes X number of days to come out, and then it doesn't come out like, right? It's like, This is a sped up time. Speeding up the time here. This is one of those like YouTube videos where they speed up the time. You know, and it takes forever. And if it's if, and like they grow a little bit, and then it feels like they stop for a month. You know, and then they spurt up a little bit, and then you plant them in the garden, and they stop growing because they've been traumatized. You know, and then somewhere around the middle of May, they just kind of go whoop whoop, and then there's tomatoes, like just like that, or fruit or eggplants or whatever. I grew way too many eggplants this year. So, I have an Italian mother. Don't judge me. Okay, so, Jesus is trying to explain. He's like, look, the issue here is that the kingdom of God doesn't grow in the way you would expect to see its substance increasing, obviously, in the world in which you live. It's, it's in the ground, and it grows slower, and it doesn't grow linearly, and you don't really expect it. But the key here is, is that the multiplicational effect is enormous. Right? So if you think about it this way, I, I don't normally do math on Sunday mornings, especially at the first service. But you can think about it this way. If you, if you thought of a chickpea, because I like falafel, um, if they're growing a chickpea, the average chickpea is going to be about a half inch in diameter. You're going to plant it. If it grows to its normal natural size, it's going to be somewhere around six feet tall, which is 72 inches, right? So if you think, if you figure the multiplier of that, it's a half inch. It grows to 72 inches tall. The multiplier there is about 144, right? If you take a mustard tree, the average mustard tree is 13 feet tall. And, and I'm only doing height here. If we did width, it would be a multiplica multiplication of three or four, okay? But let's just do height. If you just do height, 13 feet tall is 156 inches, but the seed is much smaller. It's a quarter of the size of the chickpea. So it multiplies the multiplier. So when you add, when you multiply the height, which is only double, times the, how small the seed is, you get a multiplier that's, that's approaching 10 times the difference. And that's the point of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, yes, the kingdom of God seems small in your eyes right now, and yes, it doesn't seem to be growing as fast as it should. And I, like, I get, I get that if this was like a business, you'd be concerned about the bottom line, but it's not a business. And it doesn't grow the way you expect, and it doesn't have to live up to your expectations, and God doesn't do the way you, things the way you, you think that he should. He does them the way he chooses to do them, and the way the kingdom of the God reveals itself in the world is through this silent multiplier, right? He gives another example very similar where he says, he says, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? Right? Now remember, Jesus is asking these questions not because he's searching his mind. He's asking these questions rhetorically. He's saying, look, it's not easy to come up with something that you can compare the kingdom of God to and that you would get something true out of the comparison. 
or, or to compare the kingdom of God to something, and you wouldn't get the wrong idea when I make the comparison. But then he says, here's something that we could use. It's like yeast the woman took and mixed into 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. So one of the things, like if you've baked, it's really easy to get the wrong idea about this. What most people do if they're baking bread is they'll get the flour and water and there's some salt and sugar usually. And then there's like the active, dry active yeast that comes in that little jar you put in the fridge, right? And so you get the bread all kind of get, and you put in like a teaspoon of the yeast. And so you're kind of like, yeah, I get it. It's the least amount of the different things. It's a little bit less than the amount of salt you put in. It's not that much. Okay, that's totally wrong. When you scoop that scoop of yeast out of the dry yeast stuff, that thing you just scooped out is like a base, almost 100% medium, not yeast. Right? It is stuff they stick in there so that they can jack the price of yeast way up and to, to give the yeast something to live on while, bef while you, before you use it. But the, that stuff you're scooping out isn't yeast. Do you understand? In the ancient world, they did, you couldn't go to the grocery store and buy yeast. But yeast was everywhere. And so what they did is they would, they would save cultures of yeast um, by just saving some dough from the day before. That's one of the reasons they baked bread every single day. Is because what you would do is you'd have this little thing covered with a cloth of a little piece of bread from the day before. And so you'd get all your stuff together and you'd go to mix it. And you would take the dough from the day before, which was old bread, but it had been growing and growing and thickening with yeast. And then you would take that and you might break it up or you'd mix it into the new dough. And you'd mix it and you'd mix it and you'd mix it and you'd mix it so that you'd get yeast in the new loaf. And then you'd let it rise for longer or you'd, you'd let it rise and then you'd knead it again. You'd grow it because you want the, this yeast to get through all of the new dough because you're just going to pick out a piece of this and save that for tomorrow. And you need that to have yeast in it, right? And so they would go through this process and ultimately they'd take a piece out and then they would bake the new loaf of bread and they would save the other piece for yeast for the next day. And because of that, because they couldn't go to the grocery store and spread it all through the dough with their little yeast sand, they had to go through a much more laborious process of doing it. In fact, even today, um, John was telling me between services, before he got the august job of being our communications director, he actually worked at Breakbush Donuts downtown. Yeah, he's lost a lot of that weight. And he, he said that, he said that, and I'll read this quote. He said, um, Greenbush and yeast. We would mix in the mornings 50 pounds of flour for, th and it took 30 minutes to mix in the yeast in a mixer that could easily tear off your arm. That's how much work it took. So, so if you imagine what Jesus is really trying to communicate, you've got this woman, she's got 60 pounds of flour. Okay, she's cooking for like a wedding. This is not a daily thing. And so, and she's all by herself. And she's got like a, a yeast culture, like a little bit here. And she's got to take this little thing of yeast and she's got to mix it through all this dough. And so basically she's going to work herself basically to death to mix all of that in one sitting to get this little bit of yeast to work through the whole of the dough so that every loaf that she makes has an equal amount of dough and that each one you could take a sample from. And that will take so much work and you have no idea if it's working or not. You know it is because it does. But think about this. They didn't even really know what yeast was in the ancient world. They just knew it did the thing. And so it, was, it almost felt like wizardry. Like, I don't know why the bread rises, but there's these cultures and they do the thing. And so it's, Jesus is using this example of like something that you don't even know how it exists. It's so insubstantial. It's so tiny. It's so, 
you so can't even get your hands on it. All you can do is kind of culture it, and it's kind of there, and it does what it does, and then you got to work to work it through the whole thing, and then it just does it. And then you get to the end, and you're like, I wonder if the bread's going to rise. And it does! And he's like, that's what the kingdom of God is like. Like, you're, you're going to do a lot of kneading, and working, and kneading, and working, and you don't get a linear payoff. It's not like if you work for 10 minutes, then you get like two units of success. And then if you work for 10 more minutes, you've got four units of success. And then if you work for 10 more minutes, you get six units of success. It's not like that. You get zero payoff. You get to the end, and you put the lump down, and you wait to see if it rises. And it always does. And Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is like that. There is, there is the gospel and the spirit of God through God's church, his people, is like yeast in this dough of the world. And, it's, and you are, you're working and you're focusing and you're living and you're sacrificing and you're living faithfully to, to knead in and to mix the gospel into the world and to, to keep in step with the spirit and doing what he's doing in all things. And it, you, you have no idea if it's working and it feels like it's not working most of the time. And it can be very frustrating. And if your expectations are screwed up, this is going to depress you. It's going to make you angry. You're going to give up. You're going to be discouraged. He's like, don't be discouraged. A steward has to know God's plan. You've got to know how the kingdom functions. You need to know enough about the bigger picture so that you know what you're doing today. And that's about it. There's a certain amount about, of the bigger picture you cannot live today properly if you don't know. And so Jesus wants you to know what the kingdom is like. And if you know what the kingdom is life, like, that is sufficient to know what you're supposed to do today. But much of our other inquiries about the bigger picture actually distract us from what we're supposed to be doing today. I want to look at that for just a second. Just a second. I mean 20 minutes, right? Okay, so the second thing is, and this is the next part of the passage, is that Jesus wants us to focus on our clear spiritual work, not the bigger questions or about the end results. Now, before I, tell, before I go into this, I need you to understand that I am not against big questions and hard questions, right? When I became a pastor, the, the test that they give you after the test to figure out if you're crazy is the test, which is like, will you enjoy pastoral work, right? And when I took that test, some of you have heard me say this before, um, pastoral, pastoral ministry or jobs that are like pastoral ministry was not in the top 20 jobs. All of the top jobs that came up were like something researcher, the first one was biology researcher. That was the number one job I was predicted to be the happiest doing. Okay, and then the next like eight were all something researcher, and then the next 12 were like something professor, right? And the, the psychologists were like, you could be a pastor. You'll probably be miserable your whole life. And I was like, I'm already planning on having kids, you know? <laughs> and it really has been hard for me at times because the thing I love the most is learning. And a lot of times when you're a pastor, you got to get out there and be doing. And that's hard for me, okay? So, but um, it's a big church. I kind of get to be professor for some of the time. So that's good, right? So um, I love asking big questions and researching big questions and reading about big questions and trying to think through big questions and trying to come up with plausible ways to put together big questions. And I am so into big questions. And yet, after searching through big questions for something like 24 years of my life, one of the things I also know is that it's extraordinarily dangerous doing that kind of work. 
because you're so dumb, you know, as a human being, that you think you know stuff when you don't know stuff, and you make conclusions you can't really make, and, you, and then you're so sure about them, and then you start back working backwards from what you think you just figured out to all these other important things of wisdom in your life, and you start overturning all of that wisdom, which has been experimented on for thousands of years, and you think that you can outsmart all of human history, and you end up being a big dummy, right? That's why they call second-year college students sophomores, which means the wise fool, because you learn just enough to think you know something, and you really don't know anything. Like, I mean, listen, in my academic life, I have probably read somewhere between three and 10,000 pages on economics, okay? I said something about economics a couple months ago in a sermon, and some guy who's like working on his PhD in a subfield of a subfield of a subfield of business ethics, like wrote me a three-page email about how wrong I was about some macroeconomic theory thing, and it like blew my mind, and he was totally right. And I was like, how can I be so stupid and so ignorant, right? And I've read thousands of pages in macroeconomics, but I didn't know that. And it may, apparently I said something dumb because I thought I could make a conclusion and I was wrong. And it's humiliating. I'm like, now I probably should go apologize and tell people I'm wrong, but then they won't care. And then they'll think I'm neurotic and, you know. And so it's very easy to think that if you ask big questions, that you're this like intellectually noble creature and that you're, and that you naturally assume you're morally good enough for such inquiries, which is extremely unlikely, right? And we, we just think that, we just take that for granted, like, oh yeah, we're an academic society. This is the basis of secularism and the scientific revolution. Yeah, well, we've scientific revolutioned like a hundred million people dead in the last century. Like, I mean, we should have some sobriety about like how good we are on big questions. You know what I mean? And I don't just mean like people killing people to hear. I mean just like, how, like the stuff we do to each other on a daily basis. Because we have this like nice little thought through reason about why we can do whatever we want and we don't have to do our moral duty. I don't even have to be nice to that person because they're probably the wrong political party and they deserve my open disapproval. Just idiotic stuff like that. And, and so it's important to know that though we're we're, we're drawn to ask bigger questions, partly because we bear the image of God. We need to realize that we are hor horrifically handicapped. Spatially, mentally, morally, spiritually, in asking those questions. And if we're naive about that, pride enters in so fast, and we begin to break things up. Like, for example, I can't tell you how many Christians wanted to think thoughts about election, like God's predestination of things, and to like really understand that. And what they end up doing is they can't figure it out, and they get angry at God about prejudging things. And so, how can I even be morally responsible if God has determined everything beforehand? And, and I want to be like, a kindergartner could have thought those thoughts. Like, that, those are not even profound thoughts. What you found out is, is that you knocked on a door that's made out of steel, and you couldn't get through it, and now you're angry. What we know is God told you, you are morally responsible for your life. If his judgment comes on you, it will be your fault. And also, in the mystery of the grace of God, he will save who he will save. And I've seen this in so many things like theological ideas or philosophical ideas or moral or political ideas. And people think that they've thought these perfect moral thoughts. Like they think they know what social justice is and so they know Christianity must be totally wrong. And they, 
in this, in this stuff is, is not good thinking, right? So one of the things Jesus is getting at with people is they, we, they, we want to ask even like the simplest, the seeming most innocent big question we ask Jesus. Think about this. Go through all of the things Jesus said and you try to find one place where somebody asks Jesus just a simple question and he gives you just a simple straightforward answer. This is the answer. You will read a lot of pages in vain. Jesus just doesn't do that. He just doesn't give straight answers. You know why he doesn't give straight answers? It's because we can't handle them. Because there's most of the truths that he knows that he could tell us. If we, he just told us the truth, we'd take it the wrong way. We'd find a way to take it the wrong way. And this is a good example. People ask him, Jesus, you healed that lady, and it looked like you were going to like just heal everybody, and like everybody would be saved, and you'd redeem everything. And then you turn around, and you tell us these two stories about like, well, you know, it's kind of like yeast, and it works through the whole dough, and who knows what's really going to happen, and you just got to hang in there, and it may not even look like anything's happening, but something's happening. You got to believe something's happening. They're like, those things, Jesus, are you going to win? Are you not going to win? Is it going to be a lot of people? Is it going to be a few people? Like, tell us straight. Are only a few people going to be saved? And he's like, okay. Now, before we go on, let me read what Jesus said, and I want you to summarize in your own mind what Jesus' answer is, okay? Is his answer, a few people are going to be saved? Or is his answer, a lot of people are going to be saved? Ready? Jesus said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and not be able to. Okay, it sound like, that sounds like a few. It sounds like a lot. Does that sound like an answer? Right? And then it says in verse 29, Listen, people are going to come from the east and west and north and south, and they take their places at the feast and the kingdom of God. That kind of sounds like more, right? That sounds like people are going to come from everywhere. So, what's the answer? Does Jesus give them an answer? Does he give them— now, no, I don't want you to wait for my answer. I literally, I want you to think right now. Does Jesus give them an answer? Is it going to be few? Is it going to be a lot? What is it? Who think? Okay, raise your hand if you think it's going to be a few. According to Jesus, relatively speaking. A few. Okay? Who thinks it's going to be a lot? Okay? Who thinks it's going to be both? <laughs> Who thinks it's going to be neither? Right? Okay. This is how Jesus normally answers questions. Because he's talking to human beings. And human beings are these incredibly beautiful, capable, like, there's incredible creatures who are just shot through with brokenness, right? And we're, we're like, we bear the image of God, and we can literally— image God into the world. Like, we can bring the greatest possible goods, and we can do some of the greatest possible things in creation, and there's almost no limit to how we can love and act and bring flourishing and create justice, and like, it's unbelievable what we're capable of, and it is unbelievable what we do. <laughs> oh gosh, it's so bad. We just, we lie to ourselves, and we lie to each other. We do whatever we want. We call it justice. It's unbelievable, right? And that's who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to people who are this meshed up mixture of nature and condition that are at odds with each other, full of the flesh, full of capacity, full of promise, full of rebelliousness. And he's like, okay, here's what I'm going to tell you. <laughs> like, Jesus, is it a lot or a few? And he's like, okay, here's what I'm going to tell you. I can't tell you either answer 
right? And you can see why, right? Like if he tells the people it's going to be a lot of people who are going to be saved, then what's going to happen? Right? Entitlement will set in. They'll be like, oh, that's a lot of people who will be saved. All I got to do is be better than, you know, better than the Womax, and I'm probably in, and that's not even hard, right? They're from Texas, you know? So like, Right? So the, the sense of entitlement sets in and you start thinking like, well, as long as I'm better than about a relative half of humanity or something like that, then I'm going to get in. And so like, th- you get this like, oh, it's not—we don't need to so be so interested in religion and what's the big—you know, I don't have to—you uh, don't have to, you don't have to focus. You don't have to focus. You don't have to do the work. And you don't have to be a steward, right? You just—whatever, you'll be fine, right? But what if he says, very few people are going to be saved? Then what? Well, then— We'll have one of two responses, right? We'll either go, well, then it's no use trying, and then we'll do nothing and try to put God on a guilt trip that he was unreasonable, so he should let us in, right? That's what, that's what the majority of modern Americans are, are banking on, okay? It's the kind of like, well, I couldn't possibly, and then like, God is so morally uptight, and so, you know, we'll, oh, I think I pushed the wrong button. So, you know, I'm going to do whatever I want because there's no use trying. And in the end, I'll throw up this moral conundrum in God's face and he will fall in great moral guilt and consternation that he was ever so uptight and he will make a better heaven just for me, you know? And it's crazy. And yet, like, it feels so right. Or you can take the self-righteous option. You can be like, look, I'm sorry you guys aren't going to make it. I'm going to make it. You're probably not going to make it. Okay. And honestly, it's going to be few, okay? So you're not going to get it. And I sort of get it. And so it doesn't make any sense for me to get too involved in your life or really to let you get too involved in mine. Because I only really stand to lose and you don't stand to gain. So really, what's the point? It's not that I don't like you. It's not that I hate you. I love my enemies. But listen, um, I'm going to do my own thing, right? And so no matter what Jesus says, right? There is, there's a philosophical problem. There's a psychological problem. There's a moral problem in how we hear. And so he says, listen. It's not going to be few like you think it's going to be few if I say few. And it's not going to be many like you think of many if I say many. You don't really know what it's going to be like. Like I can tell you kind of, but you're not really going to get it. Like, you can't really see the kingdom of God. You can understand its principles enough to do your duty in the present, but you, can't, you're, you don't get what the kingdom of God is going to be like. And so what you need to do is to not worry about how many people are going to get in. In order to help you in terms of your sobriety, you should think of the gate as narrow. You should think of the timetable as limited. And so therefore, the application for you ought to be to make every effort Everything possible for you to believe and trust and have faith and live out in faithfulness and be a steward and enter through the narrow gate and be part of the kingdom of God and believe and trust. And it's because you need to know that there's a point where the door will close and the gate is narrow and you don't want to be shut out and that is a real possibility. And let that give you a soberness and drive you forward positively. Right? But— to awaken your jealousy and also to tell you something about the kingdom, you need to understand that all these people you don't like are going to be in heaven. (laughs) Right? Because like, Jesus is talking to Jewish people. And he's making very clear that the guy closing the door is him because he said that they would say to him, you taught in our streets and you were with us and we know you. Right? And Jesus—see, human beings do this, right? 
We think we can trade on relationships for people to get us things we want. People who are in power and who we think we know but we don't really know, right? This happens in churches all the time where like a pastor talks to people for like eight years and then you've never like had talked to them and like you think you know them. You know what I mean? And I I mean, I try to be 100% honest with you when I talk about myself um, so that you, you, when you think you know me, you do, right? But like you don't know Lexi unless you know Lexi, my wife. Right? I tell stories. Some of the stories she's like, I don't recognize myself in that story at all. You know? I was like, it was stylized, sweetheart, for the sermonic point. She's like, well, then use somebody else's name. And Jesus is saying, you don't, I didn't know you. Just because you listened to me and you nodded at me a few times does not mean that we're friends and I know you and I'm going to open the door after I've closed it and I'm going to change everything that I do to accommodate you. That's not how it's going to go, right? But then at the same time, he's like, listen, you know all those people up in Germania and Gaul that like are swinging from trees, all the white people, you know, they're swinging from trees. They don't even have a written language, right? They're like, they, they don't even know, half of them don't even know who their fathers and mothers, like they're going to come. The great banquet. There's going to be a bunch of them that are going to come from the north. And they're going to be part, the barbarians are going to be part of the feast. And all those people in sub-Saharan Africa, all those people that you like, you're like, oh, they're just from all this, right? There's a lot of them are going to come up from the south. And they're going to be part of the feast in, in the kingdom of, Ab- of Abraham and the patriarchs. That's, that is, and east and west, like that is, your grandfathers, your great-great-grandfathers are going to be the great heroes and patriarchs of a great feast you may not be part of. And all of these foreigners that you dislike are all going to be hugging him. Like, there's going to be some, like, pygmy guy that, like, ate people, right? And, like, some weird tribe somewhere with, like, stuff stuck through his face who accepted Jesus and believed in him as for his salvation and gave Jesus his sins and received his righteousness through faith. And he's going to come, and you're going to watch him from the outside hug Abraham. You're going to watch that guy come and be like, Abraham, my great father. And Abraham, this like old Jewish guy from the ancient world, is going to be like, my son. And they're going to embrace together as son and father and as brothers in Christ under the great kingdom of God. And you thought that that's going to be your grandfather. And you'd be like, but you're going to be watching from the outside and you're never going to get in. Do you see the point there? He's like, you need to like focus on you. But you need to also know that salvation is going to be broader than you think, and that you need to realize that, and it's going to be broader in ways that you're not even comfortable with. What you need to know about salvation is many that think they're first are going to be last, and many that you think are last are going to be first. And the result, psychologically, spiritually, morally for us, is that we'd go, oh, I had better focus on what I'm here to do, what is in my court, What I'm called upon, what is demanded by the humanity God has given me, which is to trust in the king, to enter in through what he calls the narrow door through faith, to be a steward of the life that God has given me, and to keep my work and my mind and my heart focused on God, to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength every day. That's what I need to focus on. You see? And so— You see, you kind of wish I would just ask you to give more money, right? But you see how being a steward, really being everything you're meant to be, knowing your full identity in Christ, knowing that you are God's investor, and that you are, whether whether you see yourself as God's son, but in charge of his whole household, or his slave in charge of his whole household because he has all authority, however you want to parse it out, ultimately you owe nothing. Ultimately, everything in your hands is given to you from God to invest. 
somehow. And you're to invest it on the basis of what the household is all about, which is the kingdom of God. And you know enough about the kingdom of God, if you'll listen to Jesus, to know what to do and how to think and how to feel. You know. And that's what you need to focus on. And so what do we do with this? Let me give you a couple applications, and then I'll talk about the Lord's Supper as an application. One is, some of you literally need to just erase apps. Okay? And some of you metaphorically need to erase apps. There are things in your life that are leeching your focus and your heart away from what your attention is supposed to be on and the work you're supposed to be doing. And you, need, you are not obligated to know everything about international politics. You know, like, honest to God, you could spend about 20 minutes before an election and figure out who you want to vote for. You're going to vote for the exact same person as if you follow a two-year election cycle. Do you understand? Or, you, or you have a friend that's like just like you, and they think just like you. Just be like, look, November 5th, just tell me who I'm voting for. Okay? Because honest to God, that's the only influence you are going to have, like, except for your, like, angry Facebook quotes, which nobody cares about. You're not changing hearts and minds on Facebook, okay? Your friends are deleting you from their feed, and they hate that you're that political, and they wish that they could have a place where they didn't have to hate people, all right? And so, like, honest to God, like, a bug, probably a big pile of us should just, like, delete Facebook entirely, or get off Instagram entirely, or throw your phone into the lake, or— Bake bread instead. You know what I mean? Because you got to get the yeast all the way through it. And li listen, sometimes you got to do stuff that feels a little drastic. Listen, if you don't want to be worldly, you might have to live in a way that's actually different from the world. I mean, I, I know that's a crazy idea, but like, like I'm going to have to, like, like, I already only listen to podcasts in the car when nobody else is in the car. That's already something I've taken. But, but obviously, I need to take a further step of, like, finding a time to listen to my five-year-old daughter, right? I've been doing a couple things to connect with her this week. I need to take that a step further. I know I have to do that because that's my, my work to do. That's what my mind is supposed to be focused on, right? I need to have these, like, come-to-Jesus moments. I don't know what that is for you. It's probably something because we're always—our attention is always sliding, and you have to have moments where you're like, okay, wait, what is my life supposed to be? I'm doing this. This is my stewardship. You got to know what your stewardship is. And then you got to focus your mind and heart on it. You got to find a way to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength in that thing. Not wishing it was something else. Not wishing you could pay attention to that thing. On this thing. Does that make sense? So some of us have to do that. Some of us need to realize that some of our big thinking is actually killing us and is not honest, it's dishonest. Especially if you're younger and you're psychologically in kind of that truth phase where you're kind of like, I gotta find out what's true, what's true, what's true. And that's a good phase to be in, and it's important to seek the truth. But you need to be really careful there. Especially if you go to college in a place where it is not, does not overtly honor Jesus as king. Because finding out what's true is as much a moral process and spiritual process as it is a philosophical and scientific one. And if you don't have all four of those things working together, it is going to go awry, and it is mainly going to go awry in who you think the king is, and how that affects your daily life emotionally and personally. Does that make sense? And so be really careful. And one of the ways to do that is to have older, wiser, thinking people in your life 
that can deflate the nonsense you're buying into and have thought through some of these things before and can tell you what alternative thing you need to read and can help ground you. It's really important because you have to foray out into some of these thoughts because they're important. They really will expand your way of seeing things. And there's great pleasure that can come from intellectual inquiry and great goods that can come from scientific inquiry and intellectual inquiry. But it is a mixed bag of difficult things. And Solomon said it brings great sorrow to the heart. Does that make sense? Now, one of the last things that we'll celebrate in communion, because we're going to do that now, this thing we do called communion or the Lord's Supper is meant to be worship to God, a declaration of his worth, a remembering, but it's also a remembering of what he does. Remember, he said, you do this in remembrance of me. What's the point of remembering something? It is to focus your mind on it. It is to refocus your identity and to refocus your attention on something. The center of the meaning of your life and identity is the crucified and risen Savior who has died for you and wiped away all of your sins and repurchased your God-given identity for himself so that the image of God can be remade in you and you can live for goodness and glory you have not yet understood. Starting with realizing that you own nothing, but you must invest everything in your hands because you are his steward. Does that make sense? So the worship band is going to come up, and I'm going to pray. If you are a Christian, the Lord's Supper is something that you should partake in as a ritual, and you should set your heart right before it, but you shouldn't say, well, I'm not being a very good Christian right now, so maybe I shouldn't do it. That's not how that works. This is an act of faith. If you have faith in Jesus, and you're willing to repent of your sins, then this is an opportunity to do that, and you should take it, even if you were a big dork this week, okay? If you're not a Christian, this is an act of worshiping Jesus as God. Do you understand? To eat this bread and to drink this liquid is the act of worshiping Jesus as Savior and God. And if you don't believe that, we're not going to bully you into believing it. Well, this is supposed to be a moment of honest worship, so just don't do it. Just let it pass by. And hopefully you'll be ministered to in the songs we sing and the things we pray. So I'll pray and then we'll do it. God, as we take this supper together, even though it's just a symbolic meal. We pray that it would be spiritually and emotionally satisfying and filling to us. We pray that in it you would teach us how much you did to purchase us, how we were not disposable creatures in your mind, that every creature stamped with your image is an undisposable thing eternally. And we know that that is a terrifying thing to know that our destinies mean that much and that you demand that we not give up on ourselves and that you call us to, to goodness and to virtue and to love that's sacrificial and to have the mind of Christ and to walk in step with your spirit. And Father, we pray that you take us out of, out of, the, out of the fear of failure, knowing that Jesus in his death and resurrection has performed everything per- perfectly for us and pull us forward into the courage of action and faith. As we sing now, and as we take these elements, and as we refocus on remembering you, God, please help us to see ourselves as stewards and to understand the kingdom and know what we must do and how to focus our minds on the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.